electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Everybody, I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Last week's smaller rate hike already didn't sit well with former Fed Governor Larry Lindsay. Then came the shockingly good jobs report. Powell needs to give the market a slap and not just a warning, he says. Larry will join us to make his case in just a moment as we gear up to hear from the Fed chair again in a speech tomorrow. Plus, a suspected spy balloon at a canceled diplomatic mission. Tensions between the U.S. and China rising. We'll look at the potential economic fallout. And our earnings monitor continues. What you need to know ahead of reports from Pinterest, BP, and Royal Caribbean as worries grow about corporate profit margins. But first, let's start with today's markets. And stocks are well off the lows. I mean, the Dow looks to be improving by the moment here. It's only down 63 points right now. That's just two-tenths of 1%. It had been down as much as 240 points earlier on. The Nasdaq was down 1%. That tone's still a little heavier. So flip side today of what we've seen year to date. Year to date, the Nasdaq is actually up 15%, almost 16%, while the Dow is only up 2%. So again, a bit of a pause and some profit taking today. Let's move on, show what's going on in bond yields. This is kind of a story with the headwind here. 10-year, 363. We were just, uh, Steve and I were just discussing this. We saw some prints 365, maybe upwards of 367. So a big, big move here. Actually, even bigger moves on the shorter side, two-year and five-year here as well, as markets get a little skittish about that strong jobs report and what it could mean for what Powell says tomorrow. Let's get to the big story today on that note. Continued reverberations after that blowout jobs number on Friday. Remember, we were expecting a sub 200,000 print. Instead, we got over half a million, and it wasn't just that one figure. Here's, of course, the jobs data that we were looking for. Less than 200K was the estimate. Well over 500K is what we ended up with. The index of aggregate weekly payrolls, by the way, a proxy for nominal GDP, is now running 8.8% annualized in the past three months, and that's been accelerating. Steve Leisman is here with more on the fallout. Steve. uh, Kelly, the sell-off in the bond market picking up pace today with yields up sharply since the outsized jobs report Friday as markets price in lots more Fed for this year. Bonds rallied after Wednesday's Fed announcement and press conference pushing down yields. It was seen as more dovish than expected, but markets gave back all those gains. You can see here what do you call that? It looks kind of like a, the hull of a ship right there. And then it kind of takes off to the races here with the big jobs report raising concerns that inflation won't cool if the economy doesn't cool. Ed Yardeni writing the data depicted an economy that has not been landing at all, but remaining quite airborne amid more signs of disinflation. The gap between the Fed and the market for the year end funds rate outlook has closed dramatically before the jobs number of the futures market. They were at 434. Now, the market for year-end pricing in 480, a lot closer. So that gap, it had been as much as 80 basis points. Now it's just 34 basis points or a little over a quarter point. The conclusion among forecasters, if the job market's really that strong, it's hard to imagine the economy really being that weak. And without weak growth, the Fed is unlikely to cut and may have a worse problem for inflation. It's also worth pointing out, if the jobs number is right and the economy is stronger than forecast, It may be that the profit outlook is brighter, too, 
and the chance of a recession, at least in the very near term, would be diminished, Kelly. Steve, come on over. Our next guest says the quarter point hike last week. He's was been shaking his head and nodding his head the whole time I've been watching him. It was the profits in particular that set him off. All right. I think he only half agrees with me or maybe maybe less. The, the, so last week, he says uh, the Fed should have been a little bit more severe, maybe a slap to the markets and maybe Chair Powell will make some adjustments in his speech tomorrow. That's what everyone's afraid of. Let's bring in Larry Lindsay, president and CEO of the Lindsay Group and former director of the National Economic Council. Welcome, Larry. It's good to see you again. Great to be here. I don't want to. I mean, I, I can start with why you're shaking your head about the profits piece, but I don't want to. I don't want to get right to that point just yet. Let's start overall with the argument, which I get. I think we can make a very different case. So let's hear it from you. Why do you think the economy is so strong, perhaps even picking up momentum, that the Fed needs to do more aggressive rate hikes right now? Well, I think the Fed needs to stick to what it said it was going to do. Um, you know, they were talking about a, a terminal. Peak Fed funds rate of, you know, five and a quarter, maybe a little bit higher. Um, and I think that's where they're going to have to go. They need to get uh, the Fed funds rate positive in real terms. What they have, right? So now that we're where we are against, you know, what are, I, I, you, you know what I'm saying? The 4.4% for the core PCE. Come on, we're above that rate. We're restrictive now. <laughs> Let's see. So 4.75 on the most 4.34, you said? Well, all right, maybe. But um, in, in history, the we've not had a significant disinflation until Fed funds was positive in real terms relative to the CPI. Hmm. But I'll take I'll take poor PCE or whatever you want to throw at me. We're not restrictive. We're probably may be neutral, but neutral doesn't cool things off. One more to you, Larry, that I want to bring Steve in to, to debate this, but um, it, it is quite unusual, or maybe it's not, to see the index of leading indicators as bad as it is, the yield curve inversions as bad as they are, and yet the kinds of job numbers we're throwing up. Do, do you worry that these reports are a little bit of a head fake, that, that this slowdown just hasn't caught up with the labor market yet, and that the Fed could overreact to the strength in that one part of the economy? Well, we know the labor market hasn't caught up to the economy. It is an extremely tight labor market. And despite that, real wages are down about three and a half percent since the beginning of 2021. Well, if you have declining real wages, you have to fix that before you're going to fix the labor market. And higher real wages means wages go up faster than profit prices. And who gets squeezed if wages go faster than prices? It's going to be profits. You, you can't get there from here without a profits recession. Steve? Well, first of all, I want to agree wholeheartedly with Larry, not even in the current circumstances, but my work, Larry, suggests that the Fed funds rate ought to be positive no matter what. Hmm. That it's only in the weirdness of the last 10 years that we have had a neutral or negative funds rate or negative real funds rate. And that if you're talking about what is restrictive, it ought to be 50 or 60 basis points, depending upon what era you lose user look at. So if you want to be restrictive, it should be 100 over. That wow. would be restrictive. OK, now there is a debate about which particular inflation rate you use. For example, if you use the three month annualized rate of inflation over the last several months, 
then you would be actually positive and positive by, by, a by 100 or, two, or 200 yeah. basis points. So there is that question. And I think Larry's being sort of orthodox here. Would that be a fair way to put it, Larry, in terms of <laughs> using the year over year rate? <laughs> I know you are, Larry. But, but let me just ask you this question. Um, we have seen a ton of industries that are still running below their pandemic level, a ton of industries by, in terms of employment that need to still play catch up. Why should the Fed lean against that adjustment? We have tech companies shedding workers. They overhired other companies. We're still I, we may be hundreds of thousands of nurses short, Kelly. And you True. can't argue in this country with our aging population that we need fewer nurses right. than we had before the pandemic. So, Larry, I'm just afraid. Should the Fed get in the way of that transition? Oh, well, I don't know if they're getting in the way of it. I think the employers may be getting in the way of it, right? How do you fill vacancies? Well, you fill vacancies by raising wages. And so far, they feel they haven't had to do that. They are going to have to do that in order for the labor market to clear. Can you expand on that, Larry? I mean, we're talking about coming off a period where we've seen wages probably go up 10 to 15 percent on aggregate in the past couple of years. Real wages by any measure are down in the last two years. Right, right. But now employers are going to say, oh, we're not giving real, <laughs> you know, if anyone was giving you a salary hike in real terms, like, watch out. They're, they're just saying, nominally speaking, we've given people actually these wage hikes and you're saying they need to go even faster. And again, people listening to this from the investment side are going to hate what you're saying. Of course they're going to hate it because what uh, the reason they're going to hate it, the reason a businessman would hate it and resist it, is if you raise wages faster than you raise the prices you charge on your output, you're going to have a profit squeeze. But at the same time, I'm sorry, I was just going to add at the same time, profits have been at a historically high rate, right? In terms of the total profits as a percent of GDP, isn't there not scope for them to come down in order to sort of normalize and labor gets a piece and capital gets a piece and everybody goes home happy? (laughs) Well, absolutely, they have to come down. So um, back in the previous century, which is where I'm orthodox from, uh, profits were about 6% of GDP. Wow. Uh, In this century, they averaged about 9. And at the beginning of last year, they were at 12% of GDP. Okay. So fair enough. I I won't argue with you. Let's say they have to come down to 9, Steve. That sounds like a 25% cut in profit margins to me. I don't think that's what your your uh, listeners want to hear, but that's what's got to happen. Larry, before can, we... Can I just sure, add sure, to sure. that real quickly, which is that the extension of what Larry's saying is the price earnings multiple comes down because your future earnings are not going to be relative to the return on investment will be lower. Absolutely. And so I, I think people get that. So the P.E. ratio. So the, even if the earnings stay the same, it compresses in that regard. And, and I was just going to go ahead, Larry, then, then one more question. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to point out a number that uh, that you used, um, and that was that 8.8% number in aggregate compensation. Um, well, let's think about that. How fast do we think nominal GDP is going to grow? Oh, let's be generous. Let's say it's 4% uh, inflation and 2% real. That means compensation is growing 2.8% faster than any plausible GDP. Well, where's that 2.8% got to come from? It's got to come out of the employers. Um, you know, that's a big, big number. That, and the, I the guess other piece of it is how can you slow GDP when you have 
8.8% more wages going out the door. It's pretty hard. Well, and I guess maybe also what Steve is saying is, why can't you just let that adjustment happen? Why does the Fed need to then continue to raise rates? And I'll ask that as also a curtain raiser to tomorrow. What do you think the Fed chair is likely to say? Uh, the, the Fed chair, and I mean this as nicely as I can say it, had the most counterproductive press conference I can ever remember last Wednesday. Now, it, his words were okay. In fact, I called my clients, I read all the analysis, and they said it was his demeanor. You know, the uh, equities went up before he started speaking, as soon as he walked in the door. And I think what he's got to do tomorrow, because I'm sure he didn't mean for that reaction to occur, he's got to, you know, recalibrate. He's got to recant. Uh, he, he's got to say, look, folks, we have to have higher real interest rates. It's as simple as that. And the Fed is going to keep doing it. Larry, I'm just going to differ just a little bit. Can, if you guys in the back, if you have that full screen I pulled up earlier of the gap between the market and the Fed, what happened, Larry, is the data came in stronger and the market adjusted. The market understands Powell is my is my belief. So what was a 434 year end forecast for the funds rate is now 480 today. So really, right. the market and the Fed only differ by 30 basis points. Now, unless you're saying that the Fed ought to raise its terminal forecast for 2023, that's different. But I'm just saying that Powell I don't know that he failed in the sense that the market had its take, the Fed had its take, the data came in stronger, and the market moved to the Fed. I think it's okay. Steve, after the presser, the two-year was 4.09. Right. Now, that's pretty much driven by Fed funds rate expectations. Fair enough. 409. Are you kidding me? Right. They're already <laughs> above that. Um, what? So how much do they have to cut even without raising just to get to a 409? No, um, I, you know, maybe the mark. I can understand why the market's exuberant. Look, we've had uh, a Fed put in place now for two decades. We have had the biggest monetary and fiscal policy party in the history of mankind. And I know, you know, that that sounds grandiose, but it's actually true quantitatively. Why should we expect the biggest party in history to end with a single year of bad inflation? And that's what the market's hoping. And Larry, says, I thought not he was, so fast. I, I was I thought he was going to say, why <laughs> should we let the biggest party in history end without a whopping hangover and a terrible headache? <laughs> that's the implication. I, I, that's what I thought he was going to say. Yeah. But that's what I, that's what <laughs> that's I took what from he, it. That's what he thinks. <laughs> he says so I think we'll interpret that as a bit of a warning here uh, for investors, Larry, into tomorrow and maybe even into the months ahead. It's great to check in with you as always. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. And congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Larry Lindsay and our Steve Leesman. Don't miss Steve's exclusive interview, by the way, with Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari tomorrow morning. That'll be around 6.30 a.m. Eastern on Squawk Box. No rest for you, Steve. Now let's check in on this huge rally in international stocks so far this year. The emerging market ETF, the EEM, jumping 6% so far, thanks mostly to China. On that note, the MCHI ETF is up nearly 9% since the start of the year. But elsewhere, India, it's a different story. It's lower after that Hindenburg short seller report that led to a collapse in Gautam Adani's group of stocks. And in fact, Seema Modi is here with more on how investors, Seema, are starting to get a little more selective. Yeah, and it's really playing out just this year, Kelly. India in itself has gone from being the worst performing 
the best performing market in 2022 to one of the worst in 2023. Now, Bernstein analysts writing that the market is prone to a correction. Goldman Sachs's head of EM Cross Asset Strategy, Caesar Masri, telling CNBC the micro issues surfacing in India are coming at an inopportune time given the pivot of market focus towards the emerging world. He's overweight China, Korea on the reopening story while neutral on India. And that theme really seems to be playing out with both China and Korea up about 12 to 13 percent. Adani tried once again to appease investors this morning, prepaying $1.1 billion of loans ahead of the 2024 maturity date. But shares continue to slide. NYU professor Aswat Damaradran writing in a blog post that even with a 60 percent drop in Adani Enterprises, the stock is expensive and should trade 40 percent lower than current levels. Now, if you do want to invest in the emerging world and in India in general, there are ways to play it and to also avoid investing in Adani stocks. Take a look at the Wisdom Tree ETF, ticker EPI. Its exposure is roughly seven to eight times less than the MSCI India Index. We spoke to Krishna Mamani, who manages a $1 billion endowment at Lafayette, Kelly, and he said that's, that is what fund managers are looking for now, mm. getting exposure to the emerging world and limiting their, their exposure to what is becoming a big story. It's clever pair trade. Yes. <laughs> I'm also impressed that Oswath gave it the treatment, he was, that he was able even to go through the financials and come up with a valuation in relatively quick order because that itself unraveling this uh, sort of structure seems to be confusing everybody. Yes. Exactly. And I think given that he's seen at the dean evaluation, he used that type, those types of metrics to look at Adani's uh, eight listed companies and to figure out where they should be trading at. The biggest one, the parent, is Adani Enterprises. And again, even with the drop, the massive drop we've seen in the stock, the $100 billion in net, net worth that he has lost, uh, he still sees the stock moving even lower from here. Right. I mean, the bad news is he sees 40% more downside, Aswath does. The good news is that's the limit to the downside, you know, for exactly. some people who are worried about the whole thing collapsing. All right, Seema, for now, thank you. We appreciate it. Seema Modi. Coming up, what's the recipe for a sustained stock market rally? Five criteria needed to keep this rebound going from the VIX to inflation and the Fed will reveal all of them ahead. But first, we're only halfway through earnings season and there's plenty of companies we still have yet to hear from. Will the rest of the bunch help perk up the numbers or confirm a slowdown is setting in? We'll look at three cross-sector names about to report. And as we had to break, let's get a quick check on the markets. Dow's only down 50 points right now. That's about 200 off of the session lows. Uh, the Russell 2000 small caps, by the way, the worst performer, down 1.3%. The 10-year yield just under 364. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. We're now officially past the halfway point of earnings season, but it's another big week with nearly a fifth of the S&P reporting. Let's get the action, the story, and the trade on three of them. Starting with Pinterest, whose shares are up 14% this year and have surged double digits on each of its last four earnings reports. But after some mixed signals from Meta and Alphabet on the state of the digital ad market, what will Pinterest tell us? Let's ask Julia Borston. She's got the story today. And Jeff Kilberg is here with our trades. He's founder and CEO of KKM Financial and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to both of you. Julia, how is it looking for Pinterest? Well, Kelly, Pinterest shares have fared far better than the company's peers over the past year. As investors stay hopeful about user growth turning around, continuing to turn around, and also a new focus on e-commerce. Now, Pinterest monthly active users, they're expected to grow by about 7 million. The company did add about 12 million last quarter, though even with those projected additions, Pinterest would still be below its pandemic highs in terms of users. Now, analysts are expecting revenue to increase by 5% in the fourth quarter and for the company to guide to 7% revenue growth in the first quarter. Now, this is a very different story than what we heard from Meta. It reported a 4% decline in revenue for the fourth quarter. So a lot of optimism here, Kelly, particularly when it comes to driving e-commerce through the hmm. platform. All right. Also, by the way, Julie, I know you're going to have the CEO uh, on first on CBC interview, CEO Bill Reddy after these results. Uh, we'll turn to you, Jeff. What's your expectation for the stock? What would you do with it here? Well, Kelly, I don't want to pull out my pin and poke it here, but the optimism certainly is interesting to see that after earnings, we'll find out if they really did lose some ad revenue to Meta. So Meta's done a great job of stealing that ad revenue. So I look here, near its 52-week high. This is a $29 level at the 52-week high. I want to see it pull back. So I want to be a seller here, Kelly. 22.50. that's the 200-day moving average. All right. Well, very clear. Crisp, we'll leave it right there. We'll move along to BP. The European, they were beyond petroleum. Maybe now they're turning the clock back. Anyway, they're reporting overnight at a time when global oil prices are hovering near 52-week lows. This is what's so interesting. 52-week lows for oil prices, while equities remain near 52-week highs. We turn to Pippa Stevens for more on this one. Pippa, what do you think? The first thing I think, of course, Kelly, is the shareholder return program. If there's been a theme of energy earnings so far, it's that these companies are making a lot of money. But we have seen a slight divergence in what they're choosing to do with that cash. We saw companies like Chevron and Shell increase their buyback programs, while Exxon notably did not. And maybe investors had thought that they would. And so what direction is BP going to go in? And then, of course, the company's outlook on oil and gas prices. Now, it does have a pretty robust uh, refining and marketing division means it's meaning it's not quite as levered to commodity prices as some of its peers. But just last week, BP said that they actually think that the peak of oil and demand, uh, ga- sorry, oil and gas demand is going to come sooner than previously expected, hmm. thanks to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and that that will uh, hasten the transition away to renewables. So with that longer term forecast, how are they thinking about the short and near term production policies. And then finally, how are they thinking about their renewable energy investments? BP, along with its European majors, have really accelerated those investments more so than their American uh, counterparts. But just last week, the Wall Street Journal reported that CEO Bernard Looney is actually questioning some of those investments. They cited those familiar with the conversations, saying that maybe they'll dial back um, some of that spending for renewables. So how do they think about that uh, within the context of declining oil and gas demand? Yeah, and their P.E., what I just see, was about five and a half times. So, Jeff, what would you do with the stock here? I mean, I think people have been really surprised how weak oil prices are behaving, and that's got to have energy investors a little concerned. 
It does, Kelly, but I'm not going to walk away from the energy sector. Energy sector has been a theme that was a 2022 favorite. It's going to persist in 2023. What's fascinating about BP, it's the little brother to Chevron and Exxon. And as the youngest of three boys, I am the little brother. But look at the market cap here. $103 billion in comparison to $450 billion in ExxonMobil. So I know we have some insider buying, which has promoted some enthusiasm. But of course, we saw some insider buying in Tesla, and that drove Tesla lower. So maybe there's an opposite effect here. But I want to be a buyer lower. Yeah. Again, and I'm going to lean on the technical. And I, and I know, like you're saying, Jeff, you don't want to throw in the towel yet on the energy trade. And I get that. But it does seem like we've gone from having gluts to ha- or for having shortages to almost having gluts. We see it in nat gas. We saw Look at the inventory build numbers we've been getting even on the oil side and the price of crude, even after Friday's jobs report. I mean, if it's not trading well after all of that, then doesn't that tell you something's something's wrong? It, it does and it doesn't. You have to look through the perspective that this has dragged so long to Chevron and Exxon, maybe there's a mean reversion opportunity here. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at a one-year, three-year, five-year, it's dragged both of those names. So I think that's the prism, the perspective I want to look at here, but I want to buy it lower. Look at $32. All right. Fair enough. Pippa, thank you. We turn to cruise giant Royal Caribbean now, expected to report a loss tomorrow morning, but the shares are still up 40% this year and occupancy rates are expected to be near 95%. Let's turn to Seema Modi for more of the story here. Seema. Kelly, what a start to the year. Royal Caribbean, Carnival, and Norwegian Cruise Line on pace for their best start to the year on record, as you pointed out, up 40%, now trading at 11 times earnings. That's above pre-pandemic levels on this expectation that this is the year that cruising will come back. However, a new channel check survey from Morgan Stanley suggests that they're seeing some pricing softness in the month of January. So I think that's why this earnings report will provide a very crucial read on what exactly Royal Caribbean is seeing, not just over the last three months, but going into 2023, can they achieve that level of profitability that they set out for in September of last year? And then the question on China. It was fall of last year when CEO Jason Liberty told us that they are leaving China because of the ongoing lockdowns, concerns around when they could actually get back to sea. Well, here we are with the story of a China reopening. When are the cruise lines expected to re-enter that market? Of course, that's played a role in the outperformance of cruise stocks so far this year. Great point. If they mention China or AI, they're sure to see a rally uh, on that earnings report. Jeff, do you like the stock here? You know, if you want exposure in this space, yes. I want to be a buyer here. So if you look at, this is the second largest cruise company, obviously secondary to Carnival. So if you look at the two in comparison, the big focus is the net losses. They were profitable in Q3 of 2022, and now they're back to a $355 million expected loss. If you match that up, Kelly, with the service of debt, they have a debt service of $352 million because their balance sheet that has swollen nearly $23 billion. So if you want to have exposure to space, I think there's move. There's an opportunity to move higher because revenue has nearly gone up 200% to $2.6 billion. So I do wow. like it here. Be cautious. Again, this is a small beta, low $17 billion market cap. So there's going to be higher beta with this low of a market cap. Sure. And I see my final word on this. It does seem, other than mentioning China and AI, if they do talk about or any of these companies talk about deleveraging balance sheet cleanup, you know, kind of working through that process, that's sure to win favor, I would imagine. If there's any sector that needs to talk about deleveraging, it is the cruise lines because they had to take on so much debt during the pandemic to make ends meet. Now, as they see bookings return, how quickly can they can they remove some of that debt off their balance sheet and take advantage of 
lower rates or this expectation that rates will be a little bit lower than what we thought back in October of last year, Kelly. So True. that's going to be absolutely a part of the converse, uh, part of the conference. Yeah, call they're probably well. watching that window very closely, trying to figure out how to time it right. Thank you all. We appreciate it. Seema Modi, Jeff Kilberg, and tomorrow on The Exchange right here. Seema will be back with the first on interview with the CEO of Royal Caribbean, Jason Liberty, after their earnings report. That's 1 p.m. Eastern tomorrow. Looking forward to it. Still ahead here, one China watcher says that suspected spy balloon shot down over the weekend could have far-reaching implications for diplomacy, for defense spending, and for investors. He'll join me to explain. And as we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map. Even though the decline's only 40 points, we have two-to-one decliners versus advancers today. The worst name in the index, once again, is Intel. But if we sweep over here, we have McDonald's, Travelers, and Caterpillar all up nicely today. We're back after this. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Welcome back to The Exchange. Keeping our eye on markets in case the Dow turns positive. It's currently down 44. NASDAQ, the worst, down about 1%. And mega cap tech, let's check after last week's earnings mess. We're still seeing some red arrows today. Alphabet down 2%. Amazon, those are your worst performers. But C3 AI, higher again today, has continued excitement around artificial intelligence and chat GPT builds. Remember, they released a new enterprise search product last week that led to that 22% spike in shares. The stock has only had six down days so far this year. It was up 9% earlier, about a 3% gain right now. And the CEO will join Mike Santoli on Closing Bell today at 3 p.m. with more on the stock move. RH, formerly Restoration Hardware, is down 7% today after announcing late Friday its guidance will come in at the low end of its previous range. Uh, the retailer also says they'll restate results for the last three quarters due to an accounting error. And finally, Tesla, up more than 2% right now after CEO Elon Musk defeated that shareholder lawsuit about the famous Take Private tweet. Uh, the company also raising the price of its Model Y on some tax rebate changes. Over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. Here's what's uh, news at this hour. New York City is ending its COVID vaccine mandate for municipal workers. Mayor Eric Adams says the rules saved lives and helped get 96% of city workers vaccinated. But the mandate was one of the strictest in the nation and led to the firing of hundreds of employees who refused to get their shots. Two people have been arrested for plotting a racially motivated attack on Baltimore's electrical grid. Federal prosecutors say one is nationally known neo-Nazi leader Brandon Russell and the other a Maryland woman who wanted to disable power stations as part of a plan to, quote, completely destroy this whole city. And in a Chicago suburb, smoke from a warehouse fire could be seen for miles. Nearby roads were closed as the building was engulfed in flames. Crews from multiple fire departments working to bring the blaze under control. Kelly, back to you. Yikes. Tyler, I'll see you soon. Thanks so much. Still ahead, my next guest says for the markets to go higher, there are five things that need to happen, and it looks like we could be in trouble on four of them. We'll break it down and look at what he's buying based on where that leaves us. And during February, CNBC is celebrating black heritage through the stories of some of our CNBC teammates, contributors, and leaders in business. Here is John Ford. Uh, a couple years ago, around the time 
George Floyd was killed, I created a course called The Black Experience in America. Originally designed it for our two sons, ended up opening it up to a broader audience by putting it online and creating an interactive experience. And really the goal is to chart out the people, the topics, the ideas that have brought us to where we are now. And I think by looking back at that, we can chart a more positive way forward. Technology is a key part of that because it really expands the audience and intensifies the experience. Welcome back to the exchange. Markets are trading anxiously today as we await Fed Chair Jay Powell's speech in Washington tomorrow, especially after that blockbuster jobs report. My next guest says stocks can continue to rally from here if they meet his five criteria, but already one of his marks is being missed. Joining me now is David Hardin, founder of Summit Global Investments. It's good to see you again, David. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be back on your show and good to see you again. Yeah, so these five criteria, Fed must stay quiet. We're going to have a problem with that one uh, in about 24 <laughs> hours' time. Inflation rollover, earnings must expand, geopolitical risk don't reemerge, and uh, VIX. Uh, sp- you, want it, you want the VIX to spike or you want it to stay where it is? Well, you know, it's been the case that in every other correction and recession that the VIX has actually spiked above 40. In this case, you know, the VIX is down around 18. So it really says there's been... There hasn't been any capitulation. And so for the market to really run and, and, and to have a continual thing, so we're looking out three, five, et cetera, more years, we wanted the VIX to really spike. We did not get that. And now here we are with the market running and here we are with maybe inflation coming under control for the time being. And that's the key. It's so interesting you say that because to those of us who remember the financial crisis, it's like, you know, rebounds aren't this easy. You know, it, it feels to me more like the six months before the financial crisis than the six months after. But the response to that is, well, Kelly, there's a lot of different kinds of downturns and not just 08. So can you kind of like talk me through this a little bit from kind of what, what does history tell us about the way the market's behaving right now? I think that's a great question. And, and you're right. There is a lot of different downturns. It was so easy. We'd make a lot more money for people. Right. But the reality is, is that the market, when it does have rallies within down markets, Sometimes it's a policy mistake. Go back to Arthur Burns. Go back to 1974. We had a big down market in 72, 73. And what happened? They cut rates. They cut rates early. And the market rallied over 50%. Hmm. Now, the 70s are known for not very much return. And really, there wasn't anything after that rally. So it was definitely, and inflation came back. We had the Volcker situation in the late 70s. So are we having the same situation now? Are we getting ahead of ourselves the market clearly wants Powell to cut rates this year. And so the reality is, is if he does that too soon, the market's going to rally. But are we just kicking that man down the white plate? I apologize on the ETF conference. Yeah, no worries. Uh, hopefully they won't uh, summon you. So are we sort of darned if we do, darned if we don't, in the sense that, um, you know, if, if Powell's accommodative, you know, watch out. And if he's too hawkish, watch out. Is there an opportunity at all for, for equity investors here? I think so. I think what we want to hear from Powell tomorrow is we want him to turn a little bit more hawkish. He needs to talk the talk a little bit more than he did last week. Last week, I would say that he caved. He, he was very dovish. And whether that's a tweet from Elon Musk or whether it's just in general, he wanted to be a little bit more dovish. But we need a little bit more hawkish from him, a little bit more talk so the market doesn't run. It's up over 10 percent and some stocks are over 50 to 70 percent. That's too much. 
We know that's going to just create more inflation. We know that's going to come back and rear its head. And so we want to be careful of that. So I think there is a line to uh, walk here. There is hope for equity investors. You definitely want to be in this market. You just, I think you want to be a little bit more cautiously optimistic than just throw Throw everything at the wind. Yeah, and listen, I think I'm the only person on the planet who didn't think the press conference was dovish last week. I mean, I, I don't understand. The first thing he did was march out there and read a statement that says we take inflation seriously and we're tackling the problem. And the fact that he said the disinflation process is starting is just a fact. I mean, it's odd to me. I, I'm not even persuaded this has anything to do with Powell or if it's just the mood the markets are in, David. Um, I, I think there's no doubt about that people... There was a lot of short covering so far year to date. So we're seeing a lot of big junk rallies. We're seeing a lot of companies that had short short interest really, really high that are rallying the most. And again, I apologize for the, what's around me. Hopefully that's the last announcement. But the reality is, is that so far year to date, that's really what it's been. Quality has not done well. Quality earnings has not done well. The most volatile stocks on the, on, on the street are the ones that have really performed well. Usually that trade ends around this time. So we gotta be very cautious here. And I would agree. To some, he wasn't as dovish as they wanted, but compared to what he has been, he was more dovish. And I think that's the key there, Kelly. All right. And I want to just give people a couple of names here. Um, you are saying, look, there's names into it, for instance, NVR. <laughs> NVR seems to always come up. Uh, those would be a buy for you. You could think people can hold, for instance, XEL in the utilities arena. You would avoid until a lot of people would uh, in Southwest. <laughs> I, I mean, the, the avoid list, I think, is a little bit easier. But why do you think that Intuit and NVR at least deserve a look right now real quick? Well, well I think last year Intuit had a tough, tough quarter, and they really sold off because of that. And you had the big tech downturn. And I think Intel's only performed about 7% year to date. So I think that this quarter, they've got their act bettered. I think they're going to have very good numbers here coming out. And so they have it's a very high quality earnings story. It's a story that's resistant of a recession. So if you're going to be in tech, this is a name I think that you need to hold. And with the NVR, I think the Fed has signaled in some respects that this, this raising interest rates is going to end, whether it's this year, whether it's next year, it's higher for longer or it, it starts in May, they start cutting rates. The reality is, is that's in favor of NVR. And so I think that they're, they're very much tied, but they're high profitability as well. You've got good good momentum. They're up about 15% year to, over the last month, and, and they were up 20. So they're down about five from that. I think this is a good buying opportunity if you're looking at an interest rate play here. All right. David Harden, please report to the ballroom. <laughs> you handled that so gracefully. If I were a client, I'd be like, this is why this guy does what he does. Uh, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dave Harden joining me from Summit Global Investments. Still ahead, the FDA approved Ozempic to treat diabetes more than five years ago, but it's making headlines now for its off-label weight loss use. We're going to hear from the drugs maker Novo Nordisk about how they're handling the popularity surge and trying to fix the shortages. That's next. Welcome back. Shares of Novo Nordisk climbing nearly 34% over the past six months. It's the drug maker behind both Ozempic and is it Wegovi? Uh, drugs that have Wegovi, drugs that have been making headlines for their off-label weight loss use. Meg Terrell just spoke with Novo CEO and is here with the highlights. Everyone's talking about this, Meg. 
Yeah, Kelly, Ozempic and Wagovi, I think it's pronounced, although drug names are always a question mark. Um, they're approved for type 2 diabetes and obesity, and their use has just been skyrocketing. Prescriptions have been rising uh, really uh, quickly uh, for both medicines, and the company says they're focused on the medical use of these drugs, what they're actually indicated for, although we know that there's been a lot of interest in use of these medicines for people who are not necessarily on that FDA label. You can see a bit of choppiness there in the prescription data there have also been manufacturing shortages of these medicines. And so that has exacerbated uh, problems for people who are indicated for the drugs in accessing them sometimes. We spoke with Novo CEO this morning about what they're doing about those manufacturing issues. Here's what he said. We are investing some $3.6 billion dollars uh, in 2023 to really ramp up manufacturing capacity. So a strong commitment to sustaining growth and making sure that patients can get the medicines they really expect to get their hands on. Now, there are other barriers for patients to accessing these drugs, including insurance reimbursement, particularly for obesity. Uh, so Novo has a study that is reading out in the middle of this year, which will actually show whether this uh, a big weight loss uh, result actually can be protective against things like heart attack. Uh, you also have Eli Lilly in the market here expecting an approval for its obesity drug uh, perhaps by the end of the year. And this is a market that Jefferies estimates could be $80 billion at its peak worldwide. So this is something that Wall Street, as well as everybody else, is watching very closely, Kelly. And Meg, you know, the, the reason why we're curious from the CEO if they can make enough supply available is it sounds like the demand is there. And People just aren't sure if it's fair for weight loss users to be taking supply away from those who need it for diabetes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a, a health condition that people have been prescribed a drug from their doctors to use uh, in order to keep their blood sugar in check. And if you can't get the medicine because perhaps somebody who is not medically indicated for the drug is using it for cosmetic purposes, I think that's causing a lot of frustration among the diabetes patients. But do, it, does it sound to you like from the company that, that those days are soon going to be over or not? It does, at least from the company. They do expect that uh, these shortages should stop. Um, Eli Lilly has had a similar situation. We spoke with their CEO, Dave Ricks, last week. Uh, similar thing there. They're investing in making sure the manufacturing is up. It's just kind of amazing to see these drugs launch so quickly and to have so much attention being paid to them that the companies just didn't make enough. And totally. then, of course, they had some of the manufacturing issues. Yeah, no, it's, it's kind of a nice problem to have. Like, hey, we didn't even pour a ton of money into advertising and all the rest of it, and this is just organic demand. Uh, there raises other questions as to whether these are legit, and we'll get into those uh, once supply is fully available, I guess. For now, Meg, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Meg Terrell. Coming up, the U.S. shooting down that China balloon over the weekend, and as Congress works out a budget, the controversy could have big implications for defense spending. One analyst writing, never let a crisis go to waste. What he thinks this will mean for your money is next. Welcome back to The Exchange. The U.S. military is searching for remnants of the Chinese surveillance balloon it shot down over the coast of South Carolina over the weekend. Defense stocks higher today, continuing their strong start to the year. And perhaps this could be a catalyst that Congress needs to fend off defense cuts and maybe even raise spending. As our next analyst says, never let a crisis go to waste. Let's bring in Roman Schweizer, aerospace and defense policy analyst at Cowan. Also here with what this could mean for increasingly strained U.S.-China relations is DeWardrick McNeil, managing director at Longview Global and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to both of you. Roman, let me just start with you. What is the implications for uh, the companies you follow? 
Well, look, I mean, uh, the, the overhang on the defense group right now is the budgetary debate in Washington and the commitment by the House Republicans to uh, to try and enact a, a deficit reducing budget. Uh, and they have talked about putting defense cuts on the table and uh, investors have taken note of that. Uh, and despite a backdrop that uh, features geopolitical risk around the globe, uh, significant U.S. defense spending over the last two years, uh, increasing foreign sales and uh, and increasing aid to Ukraine, uh, the primary concern is how the budget gets resolved for the next fiscal year with all the drama that we're going to see. Yeah, I mean, do you think that, I guess the focus goes on the Republican side here. What's the mood, do you think? They seem pretty upset about the, the balloon. Well, they do. And, and, and I think, you know, what this really uh, represents is a, is a longer term challenge, the strategic competition that uh, both Republican and Democrat uh, lawmakers uh, have discussed. Uh, you really, you know, you have the House uh, China Commission, which is a strongly bipartisan panel. Most of the legislation about China has been passed via uh, strong bipartisan votes. Defense is one portion of that, uh, but you know, really, the 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 sort of growing or continuing uh, China threat uh, has been, uh, you know, one of the reasons why the defense budget has grown uh, and and will probably continue to do so. Uh, I'm not suggesting that uh, the Congress is going to uh, fund uh, billions of dollars of balloon defenses, but I think this right. just uh, one example. Apparently, of, uh, yeah, I was just going to say you just need some missiles uh, in, a, in a safe place to shoot it down. DeWardrick, uh, Representative Rokana was quite hawkish about the China issue this morning, as, as is often the case. But what does that tell you as minds are focused here on whether we're banning TikTok or trying to think of some kind of retaliatory action for uh, for what we just saw and how is that likely to affect U.S.-China policy? Well, Kelly, there's a lot going on here in Washington prior to uh, this uh, balloon surveillance mission, and this will certainly heighten the tension. But, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to gather, uh, Kelly, why China would launch a mission like this with so much to lose. They've stepped on their own diplomatic message. Over the last two months, Kelly, China's been trying to counter the U.S. narrative which is that China is an increasingly rogue, increasingly volatile surveillance state. And then they launch this mission. And to your point, right in the middle of a debate about TikTok and outbound investment screening and increasing uh, export controls on high-end chips. So it's, it's very bizarre to me why they would do that. But it also tells us that there is a high tolerance for risk if Xi Jinping approved this mission, if it went up to the Central Military Commission and was approved by him. And that should concern us all, uh, that he was willing to risk it all for a mission that, quite frankly, has negligible intelligence value, given that we were likely able to jam the signal and conduct a counterintelligence uh, mission on the asset. It's true. And, and there's now the second balloon over Latin America, kind of same explanation being given by the Chinese. Roman, when you hear what DeWardrick just said, Again, does it lend to this idea that defense spending won't be affected? I mean, it's it's a bold statement to make with a new Congress that looks like they, in some ways they want to pick a fight. But maybe this does change things. Well, I, I, I do have to admit, and I, and I don't want to, uh, I left my tinfoil hat uh, <laughs> in my other office, but I do have a nagging concern in the pit of my stomach that uh, when uh, the Navy uh, salvage divers bring up all those uh, electronics, that they are, in fact, military intelligence payloads and perhaps not something snooping on greenhouse gases and climate change-related stuff. Uh, China has said this was a civilian mission. Uh, and, and, and to the point of concern, why would they launch such a mission when they're trying to change the narrative? 
Uh, it would be a really bad look for us to have shot down something that does not contain intelligence gathering uh, equipment. Uh, but to your broader point, I mean, look, this, this idea of a competition with China, uh, you know, via technology um, uh, disentanglement or decoupling uh, is going to be, you know, uh, unfortunately, uh, an issue for a long time to come. And uh, and I do think it will be a budget driver in some regards. Yeah. And uh, and again, uh, it, it is a bipartisan issue. Lawmakers uh, in both parties voted to increase defense spending. Uh, there are, of course, parochial reasons to do that. Um, but, uh, you know, just any, anywhere you spin the globe, the geopolitical environment is not a great place right now. Yeah, and, and it's exactly, George, what you've been telling us. Uh, be mindful of with the U.S.-China situation. We have to leave it there, gentlemen. Thank you both very much for your time today, Roman Schweizer and DeWardrick McNeil. Now, Beyond Meat may be struggling to stay relevant, but the faux meat trend is apparently here to stay. You'll even be able to find it on the seafood counter soon. We have a peek into the big money behind fake fish coming up on Power Lunch, and there's Tyler Matheson getting ready. Too bad we can't do a taste test. Uh, I'll join him on the other side of this quick break. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com/offer/siriusxm.